Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Each weekday at noon, you'll find me here on 90.3 FM or WPLN.org. We're journeying into the identity of our city and region and bringing you along with us. Today, I am sorry to report that spring break is officially over. Yes, I know. But as students and teachers settle back into the daily school routine for the home stretch of this academic year, we're going to take a moment just to see what the daily school routine even looks like or feels like at this point. We're in year three of the pandemic after all, so how are our kids doing? But first, tech companies like Amazon, Facebook, Oracle, and Dell are moving to town, and with them, thousands of new job openings in the tech industry. Now, the city is working to fill these jobs before outsiders do. WPLN's own enterprise reporter, Damon Mitchell, has been following story, and he joins us now, along with Jama Mohammed, a tech worker who recently got into the field. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Thanks to you both for being here. Good to be here, Khalil. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm good. Jama, thanks for being with us, sir. Thank you. Thank you. So, Glad to be here. Damon, I want to begin with you. Tech giants are coming to town with job opportunities that are attractive and highly competitive. So what does this mean for Nashville? Uh, I think it means a lot of things. One, it means economic growth, uh, obviously more jobs for residents, um, and also revitalization in certain neighborhoods, if that's what a company agrees to do. Uh, but kind of on a negative end, I think it, it could mean displacement. A lot of times development can harm residents. Um, so if Amazon, Oracle, big tech giants come here and bring a lot of jobs, um, it could raise rent for a lot of people. Are Nashvillians prepared to fill these positions? I mean, what's the real issue with these employment opportunities? Yeah, I, I don't think it's that simple. Uh, I've, I've talked to tech leaders and employers about this, and the general thought is that uh, many Nashvillians are prepared to fill some of these jobs and can. Uh, but the issue is that there are not a lot of Nashvillians who can fill some of the higher paying jobs. Um, and of course, like the higher paying jobs has been kind of the talking point with city leaders and other people who want these companies to come here. So, Jama, you recently graduated from a training program and you already have a job at HCA. Congratulations on that, by the way. Hey, I'm excited. Tell me about the certification process. What was that like? Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, I I was working at another job and um, I was accepted into the opportunity tuition program through uh, Nashville Software School where uh, they defer the payment of the program. Um, so I just made that jump. Um, so six months ago, I didn't know anything about code. And here I am now with my first uh, tech job. It was a very intense uh, process, uh, five days a week from nine to four. Uh, and it was all remote. So um, the Zoom fatigue was mm. very real for you, boy. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, it came out the other side and it's, it's looking good. Well, we're happy for you, my friend. And I want to ask about the Nashville Software School. Is it an expensive program to be enrolled in? I think I was just really in a good spot, right? So it is, I, I don't know, I don't want to say pretty expensive. It's, it's what, $12,000, I think that's on their own website. 
I think it's a lot cheaper than going to a four-year school and being saddled with uh, the debt from going to school for four years and then having to fight that uphill battle of trying to find a job in a in 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 a space where it might already be saturated and all the issues that come along with finding a job after going to a four-year school. Mm-hmm. Bill Simpson is chief technology officer at N Contracts, a software development company in Brentwood. His advice was to go to college if you can, but also he says you really don't need to. You can literally go and watch the entire MIT course book or Stanford course book or any of those things that you want to do, not get a degree, but learn the vocabulary and learn how to have the conversations around these particular technologies and know enough to go dive deeper. And that's really what we're looking for is people who have that intellectual curiosity. So I'm not going to hire somebody off the street who doesn't show me that they want to learn and that doesn't show me that this is going to be a part of them forever and ever and ever and ever. Um, but I will take somebody who's uh, out of high school that uh, can show me that progressive path and just ask us stuff. But I think this community is, is really interested in teaching people and realizes that we have a lot of opportunity to give back. Jama, this seems like the kind of approach you took. So tell me, how did you decide on the program you went into? Oh uh, yeah. So how I decided was uh, shout out to my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law, uh, we talk regularly, and she had informed me that she knew some uh, folks that had gone through the program, and they were making kind of they were making double what I was making, uh, doing what I was doing. And I was like, no, I'm I'm about to mm-hmm. apply like right now. <laughs> that was the impetus for all of this kind of setting forth. So you you were talking about the schedule that it's, you know, nine to five, nine to four, you know, for I, I forget for how long, 12 week program, six months. It was. Yeah, it was 24 weeks, 24. Is that, weeks. Is that six months? OK, I, I think so. Uh, we're going to just okay. go say that it is. <laughs> I, but, I you know, I wonder about like the accessibility of these training programs outside of that time commitment. Absolutely. You know, are are people able to be in this type of program yet, you know, feed themselves and pay rent and work? I was really lucky. Um, I was in a really good spot to um, be able to do this. Um, the child tax credit had uh, hit like right when I started, so I was able to leverage that. Also, uh, my wife works full time, so I had that you know support from her to, and um, we you know relied on that. Um, I, I don't really know how anyone would be able to do that for six months without that being their full-time job. But all that to say is it's the same expectation we have of college students Mm. uh, that aren't able to work during the day and have to keep up with the class load, uh, you know, workload of, you know, a semester. Um, At least this was condensed to six months and I was able to kind of come out of that with a job pretty much right out of that. Now, Damon, does Nashville have the schools and training services needed to really provide a competitive workforce to take some of these jobs, particularly some of the higher paying jobs you mentioned earlier? Uh, I'd say yes and no. Obviously, it's not like uh, we have Silicon Valley where the college system is kind of geared towards tech. Um, so it's not that. But there are definitely independent tech schools like the Nashville Software School that John Wu graduated from. There are also plenty of two-year and four-year colleges in Tennessee. So the programs do exist. But I, I think the question is, um, kind of as you just discussed with John Wu, is are they really accessible to residents um, who want to pursue a career in tech? But I will say that 
making tech programs available to everyone who wants to enroll in one is something um, that the state's higher education director is thinking about. Now, okay, so the state's higher education director is thinking about that type of thing, but I want to ask about the tech companies. You mentioned earlier that the tech companies are here and a part of what they're doing for communities is if they're coming into a community, how can they improve it? What are they going to add to it? Are they going to build housing units? Are they going to help out the parks? Do you think that tech companies who are coming to town, are they obligated to help train some of the residents and people who already live here to be able to apply and get some of these jobs that they're offering? This is a, a great question, and I'm going to try to not to be controversial, but you have employers like Bill Simpson who was, he expressed his willingness to train people up if they're interested. Um, not everybody thinks like that. I think when you talk about like an Amazon or Oracle, um, they do do things in the community, but I'm not sure that they're obligated. Um, like they're, they're about money, making money in business. So um, I don't think that they're obligated to train people. I think it's more so on... CD leaders to make sure when they're asking people to come here and inviting them in to make sure that the residents are trained or have access to be trained. And then you also have groups like Stand Up Nashville and the Equity Alliance who are kind of coming in and saying, hey, they're asking like Oracle and Amazon these questions about how they're going to train people. Um, so I think it's more so on city officials who want these companies to be here to make sure that people are trained. Can I add to what Damon said? Yes, I please. do think that it is on companies to uh, train the workforce. I think so often the uh, the risk of education falls on the worker and that paradigm should it has to shift. It cannot be this way where we expect workers to become these like ready out of the box, uh, like ready to go, someone we can throw in a uh, person and and all of that risk comes from their own uh, pockets like that. That's just that's just not something that we can that this not sustainable. Um, and this and it's led to these like situations where we got people going out here getting uh, our degrees and uh, all these other degrees that and then there's no uh, market for uh, that type of student. But I do think that the employers should have more skin in the game. Schools should have more skin in the game. It shouldn't be all on the student to figure everything out. That is recent tech hire Jama Mohammed. He was joined by WPLN reporter Damon Mitchell. Thanks to you both for being on the show. Thanks for having me. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll explore the effects this pandemic has had on our youth. If you're a parent or teacher, we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colonna, and this is Nashville. A lot of area kids are back to school this week after spring break. As they settle back in, we're going to take some time to check in on how our kids are holding up as we enter year three of this pandemic. We're going to hear from some young folks later on in the hour, but hey, we can't talk about our kids without checking in with parents, right? I'd like to welcome our first guest. Sandra Williams, who has a high school senior at home. Sandra, welcome to This is Nashville. Hello, and thanks for having me. Oh, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us. So 
Tell us what life was like in your household as the pandemic set in and life took a completely different turn. Okay, so we look at March 2020 and all of a sudden everything is virtual. Uh, so of course, first there's a shock that occurred uh, to not having day classes and not being with your peers. And so the adjustment of getting used to sitting in front of the computer uh, during school hours and the adjustment of having your parents at home working during the school hours. It was a bit challenging at first, but uh, we were able to navigate it pretty easily, um, getting the information from the school, working with the remote classes and you know signing in every morning. And I think for my child particularly, um, becoming adaptive to being responsible. I need to be there at a certain time. I need to be in class. I need to do this. I need to still turn my assignments in and then saying the boundaries of, okay, my parents are also at home uh, and they have to work. So at first initial was a shock, but we managed to uh, adjust pretty quickly. When school went remote, what was your daughter's response? Did she, was she excited about it? Was she a little upset? At first uh, she was upset. Um, this, we of course have never had a pandemic in her lifetime mm-hmm. or mine like this. So of course, understanding at that time, she was a junior understanding that, uh, this is not typical. This is not going to go away like next week. Um, and that we have to stay focused. We have to keep up with our studies. And I think the, the difficult part was for making sure that we kept up with everything. And that had to have her attention as well as our attention, uh, going into the virtual counseling sessions with her her uh, teachers and with her guidance counselors. I want to bring in my next guest, a social worker and also the program coordinator for the mayor's youth council, Adriana Carter. Welcome to This is Nashville. Yes, thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure to have you with us. So describe the work that you do with the youth. Um, So with the Mayor's Youth Council, my big job is amplifying their voices with all the adults and powerful people across our city. So it's connecting them to these larger systems and making sure their voices are heard in and through every decision that is made. So from what you've seen over the past two years, how are our kids doing? Um, I mean, they're living history. They are living through a pandemic and they are living it beautifully. It's very difficult. We've had to, you know, shift programming pretty intentionally like the schools and go virtual. Um, And it's been super trying because we started March, 2020 with the tornadoes and then the pandemic. And then, you know, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery hit, and it was just, how do we engage young people at a different level? And they, we got together and kind of processed it intentionally. So it was creating a lot of time for them to connect with one another and connect with me and really think through what the heck was happening in our world at the time. As they were thinking about, you know, what was happening to the world. I mean, as you said, there's the global pandemic, the tornado, civil rights uprising. You know, how has that changed their visions of the future? They... 
they are active. They want to be engaged. They want to be involved in a lot of the decision-making that happens in the city, across the city, in their schools. Um, most importantly, they want accountability. So they are, you know, they are the ones that are marching in the street. They are the ones that are going to uh, the Capitol and saying, hey, this bill doesn't work for it, or or this bill is is the one that we need to have that we need to change that impacts positively impacts young people. So they are super engaged and active and energized from all that is happening in our, in our country. Sandra, you mentioned something about your daughter becoming more accountable as far as her work and her studies. She was really on it, making sure that she got up dressed and was ready for school in remote session during that time. What else did you see change in your daughter's approach to her education? I think what I saw with my daughter is that the urgency to to become adaptive because we don't know when this is going to end. As I said, she was a junior when it started. So we went into hoping we would have a senior year and just really becoming more appreciative of what was available. being virtually, you know, school virtually was no easy task. And just looking forward to, okay, now I've got to do this. I've got to master this. When I saw her become more dedicated and interested in and making sure that she was on top of things so that when she was able to return in that next spring in a limited capacity, you could see that there was a difference. Mm-hmm. There's a purpose there. And I think that um, not knowing the unknown Uh, encourage her to have a purpose. If you're just joining us, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We are checking in on our students and talking about how the pandemic has affected them. My next guest is one of those responsible for guiding students through, through the transition of remote learning to being back in the classroom. Anna Bernstein is a teacher at J.T. Moore Middle School. Hi, Anna. Thanks for joining us. Hey there. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to hear everyone's thoughts. So middle school is a time of transition for a lot of students. (laughs) And, you know, I'd like to know what you've seen change in your students since coming back to the classroom. What have you noticed about their behavior? Yeah. So, you know, I think we asked young people to be very independent for an extended period of time. And I think we've heard that from Ms. Williams and Ms. Carter. Um, and they're learning new technologies and ways of interacting with the world, all while processing physical and, and mental trauma, really, during this pandemic. Um, and then we kind of threw them back into school without really changing uh, any large parts about how we instruct and, if anything, kind of putting more restrictions on their curriculum and their teaching. Um, So what I'm seeing from kids is really this negotiation between their newfound independence um, and, and trying to work within a system built with far more controlling norms than they they had for the past couple of, of years, I guess a couple of years now. Hmm. Um, so what I hear and see from students is this kind of like dual desire for they want to own their own experiences because they were asked to do that during that virtual learning setting. And they're also looking for deeper and more authentic and relevant connections to their learning and their learning environments. Um, I think they saw how quickly things could change. And like Miss Williams said, how um, adaptive they had to be. And now they just seem, they seem a little confused about why other things that aren't really working for them in the traditional school system can't also change and adapt like they had to. Thinking about that, like the future, what have your students shared with you about their lives and their futures? What are those conversations like? 
Yeah, like uh, Ms. Carter said, I think they're they're really ready to be more active participants and builders of society. I think that they, um, while it was while it did feel really disorienting to be kind of disengaged from. Uh, from, you know, in-person schooling, I think it also inspired them to be, you know, more active participants, both in in democracy and in building their own future. Um, so I, I actually see, uh, you know, I, I hate to overuse the word resilient, but I see such resilience and, and optimism in them, um, which is always interesting coming from a, a middle school perspective, which is <laughs> normally uh, has a little bit of a darker view on things at, at 13. Um, but I, I see them being really, really optimistic and having a real desire for, for being active participants and change makers. Sandra, when you talk with your daughter about their future, what does she have similar feelings? She does. I think being at home for that period of time because it was not only not going to school, it was not seeing friends. So you had things going on in the world that that got her attention and that had an effect on her thinking about how things should be. And so when we talk about the future, we, I keep saying we talk about having purpose, uh, that this life is, is not a guarantee. You've got to take advantages and you've got to be um, you know, focused. And I think that's what we talk about the most is having a plan. Um, for your future, you know, you're going to go on and go to college and what are you going to do with that? And more so after going through this last two years, I think that's been the the most the, the most effective um, for her is just trying to develop that plan together. Christopher Floor works as an exceptional education coach in five local public high schools. He says he's worried about the time students have lost socializing and learning through subtext, like seeing adults interacting or seeing peers resolving conflicts. He says that these soft skills, it's hard to reteach. For children, I hope that... Um that the adult world finds sensible ways to kind of make up for the disruptions that have happened in their life due to the pandemic and that they don't walk out of their youth with less than what other generations have had. And that's something that I worry about because, you know, learning loss is a real thing. It's a real thing every year in the summer, right? And so adults are going through lots of trauma right now, you know, and kids are going through lots of trauma. And I feel like uh, the community, the whole community, not just schools or churches, the whole community is kind of waiting for things to kind of return to normal. Sandra, as a parent, is this something you've worried about? Um, yes, it is. It is because in the home where you're protected as a child and then you are looking to go out into the world, into the next phase, um, there are those, those concerns. When will things be back to normal? And how you navigate as a parent, you're able to provide that guidance when they're right there with you. Um, but as Chris was saying, you know, they've lost a lot over the last two years. And how do we help them catch up with that? So it is a concern. Adrienne, I'd love to have you weigh in here. Yeah, I agree. I think um, the most important thing that I've try to engage in programming is the mental health practices and self-care and taking care of yourselves and um, using your resources around you, be it our programming after school, 
um, or keeping your screen off because Zoom fatigue is very real. Um, so I think it is a concern, but I'm also super hopeful and to speak to uh, what was said earlier about young people are incredibly resilient. Their brains are super plastic um, and they can adapt and with the right supports will be wildly successful. Anna, as an educator, you've seen the curriculum change to adapt for, quote unquote, this lost time that the pandemic created. But how how have you had to adapt in how you teach and what lessons you focus on? Yeah, so um, definitely in, in Metro, you know, we have we have ad- adapted a new curriculum um, with with the aim of, uh, you know, quote unquote, making up for the quantitative measures of, of learning loss, which I have feelings about that phrase. But um, I think for me in the classroom, it really has been more uh, about adapting my teaching to make sure I'm including those soft skills that uh, Mr. Floor was talking about. Um, So for me, oftentimes, a lot of my lessons I'm also trying to include more things about emotional regulation and conflict resolution. So where are there points within the academic curricula that we can um, include lessons and modeling about what it looks like to uh, regulate our own emotions and come back from moments of dysregulation? And also just like how do we interact with other humans again face to face um, when for so many students uh, that was limited for a while? You're talking about the classroom. I'm curious what changes you all would like to see made at the school level to help students process and adapt. Sandra. As Anna was saying, you have to put the soft skills, you have to put that mental health piece back in. The kids are not going to just automatically bounce back. They've had that restriction. And so a lot of it is is kind of trying to retool with them. And there's a lot of emotions. Every child is different. And so they're coming back with different baggage. And if anything, being able to deal with those emotional things, having those services available. um, I would say that my child was fortunate because we had the needs available for her. But for so many students, there was the access to the necessary needs for school. So you got to be able to adapt and help them to adapt coming back in. And that's going to have a lot of the mental health resources that's needed and just helping to teach them coping skills. It's it's not easy. If it's not, if it wasn't easy for adults, imagine for children. Mm -hmm. So I I agree with you to incorporate that. This has been such an extended time of seeing the real need and benefit of community support. So how can all of us best support the young people in our lives as we move forward? Adriana. First and foremost, listen to young people, um, engage them, ask them questions. They they know a lot. They are navigating this life in this world with their experiences at the forefront. Um, so it is super important for us as adults to really tap into their voices and hear what they have to say. Anna. Yeah, I definitely echo that same sentiment. My number one response to that is listen to the kids and really hear what they're saying. And I also think that adults have a real opportunity here in this time to um, model and share their own vulnerability, right? So, so much of mental health is just having a community, like you said, that you are open to sharing with. And I think the more that adults can share how they've processed their experiences over the past two years, the more comfortable and open uh, young people will be as well. Sandra. I think in this uh, year that we've started now, our family has become so much more engaged with 
not just our daughter, but her peers and being available and, and having that, as someone just said, having that listening ear, we've adopted in and brought in other kids into our circle. And like you said, just being there for them, providing those opportunities for them, and just letting them know that they're not in this alone. And so it's not just about our child now. We, we have a, a little family of students now that I noticed we didn't have two years ago that we're just connecting with and connecting with other parents to make sure that we're keeping the circle tight around these students. That is Sandra Williams. She was joined by Adriana Carter and Anna Bernstein. Thank you all for coming on to the show. We've been talking this hour about how this pandemic has turned our kids' lives upside down. After the break, we'll hear from some young folks themselves. Stay with us and tweet us about your experience at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. This hour where it's all about our youth. The pandemic has turned all of our lives upside down, but how is it affecting our students? Let's get right to it with a few young people to share what life is like in their words. My first guest is Chris Stedman, a senior at Laverne High School. Chris, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you being here with us. So Chris, do I have this right? You actually decided to start writing a book during the pandemic. Yes, sir. So it's called Time to Scrap. And let me just say, I think that that's really amazing that you wrote a book during that time. I know plenty of people who did quite the opposite of that and from being productive. So tell me about Time to Scrap. To give a background, um, I'm a writer. I love writing. Uh, I've always wrote. And I've actually written um, manuscript for comic books before Time to Scrap. But with comic books, they take a lot of work to get done. You know, artists, you got to have a lot of stuff. So I said, I could just make my own book with no picture. So Time to Scrap came about with uh, Miss Fictional. And I was playing a lot of fighting games, such as Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat with my cousin. So hmm. the love of fighting games, plus the I wanted to make something fictional, entertaining, plus with um, just have a message behind it. Like things, a lot of the book handles um a lot of things that youthful and teenagers, such as like maybe if you're 18, 19, you don't know what to do. Life's looking pretty rough. And it's just an upcoming story. So tell me, like, really, why did you decide to write it? Like you said, you're playing Street Fighter with your cousins and something hits you to write this book and to pursue this love that you have for writing. I figured it'll be a good starter because I plan on starting my company and um a key thing that got me, well, it was, it was just a lot of whatever, a lot of things that was going on in 2020 with the pandemic, um, the race riots, the, um, it was just so much going on. And I was, I felt like, you know, not to just make it sound like it was bad for me because it was bad for everybody, but life was pretty rough, you know, online school, as like some of the guests mentioned before, was pretty hard and rough and grades were dropping. So I just wanted to make something like, um, make something that's relatable for people during that time, especially teenagers, um, just making it seem like art, a book that tackles the upcoming, you know, this book tackles about faith and having faith that life will get better. And I wanted to write a book about that. Two questions for you. First, what's the name of your company? Uh, I haven't started it yet. I plan on starting it this year. I'm a, it's going to be called STEM and entertainment. Okay. 
Look forward to more releases coming from you all in the future. And second, when you were writing this novel, you just spoke about what you wanted it to be for teenagers and how it to serve them. How did it help you to process the changes that you witnessed in society as you wrote the novel? Uh, it was like a, it was kind of therapeutic in a way, like just re- uh, relieving some of the stress I was feeling, you know, um, even though nobody saw it or nothing, writing has always just been a way for me to, you know, release and get out, you know, I, whether it's writing a short story, poem, song, anyways, writing, writing has always helped me deal with things and the fact that uh, people are buying this and it's helping with them too and it's inspiring them too, that's, that makes it even better. So I understand you have an excerpt from your book you would like to share with us. Can you set us up for the scene that we're about to hear? Okay, yes. Yeah. So in this point of the book, and I'm going to try my best without spoiling too much, but at this point in the book, um, the main character, Joseph, um, he's training because he um, he has to train to you know fight in this, danger, this very dangerous tournament. And He's training with um, a girl. Her name is Nia, and they're being trained by a guy named Isaiah. Nia, she's been training her whole entire life. You know, she's very strong, very powerful. And every day, Joseph is getting beat down, and he's not seeing no progress, no nothing. And he doesn't think he's going to win the tournament. He's entered the tournament to um, win the prize money to get him and his family out of the poverty and poorest conditions they live in. Uh, wait, let me find it real quick. Okay, yeah. The power doesn't just come to anybody seeking it. It comes to those who believe in their hearts and not their heads. Believe in what? I ask in anger, trying to catch my breath. The goodness of the earth and God, he says. How can I believe in God when I grew up in hell? If there was a God, then why would he put me in hell my whole life instead of heaven? I would be in a big house with my mom and dad without living in a neighborhood where people die every day. That's what God does. But I'm not good enough for that, huh? Or the power. I say in anger, trying to hold back tears. I seem to catch him off guard. He pauses and catches himself. Life is hell, kid. It's a test to see who can make it. It's up to you to make it, but only you can decide that. Not me, Mia, or your family. You have to actually feel it in your heart, Joseph. That's what the power is. Even if you don't believe in God, you must find the positive in life. You must gain a positive spirit inside you, Joseph. He says, looking down at me, like he sees someone else in me. Wow. Man, I'm really impressed. I like the fact... That, that that right there, you're talking about patience in development. You're talking about dealing with um, faith as opposed to belief. And you're also talking about like situations that are happening. Some people do believe that if there were God or they question faith and they're like, why are we going through this, this difficulty in life? I can totally see why this has really helped you as you wrote this. Now, you're reading it to me and I'm picturing this and I like to see things visually. So I'm seeing this in some form of a movie. Is that any type of idea you have for this in the future? <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. All right. All right. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Angelie Kimbo is also a high school senior. Angelie, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Really a pleasure to have you with us. So let's go back in time to when this pandemic began. I can bet that that was a super abrupt change. So the last year of normalcy that was basically untouched by the pandemic was my freshman year. And when you're a freshman, you're just trying to navigate high school in general. And there's this notion that everything is going to be okay. And um, the sense of normalcy that you believe will be promised. And 
when the pandemic hit um, basically two years ago, um, there was just a lot of uncertainty and um, not really this idea that we could potentially just be out of school for as long as we did. Um, but there is that big change coming back now, um, coming out from the pandemic, really adjusting being back in person and being with some people that you haven't even seen um, the past few years. I mean, that's got to be something. You spent most of your high school career in this pandemic with the idea of normal completely obliterated. How has that affected how you think and act? Um, I will say that um, the pandemic has definitely made me um, kind of act with more compassion and with more grace to those that I am surrounded by. I know for my peers, um, even prior to the pandemic, everyone goes through what life throws at them and that can be really difficult. And some of those difficulties don't really are apparent. They're not really apparent until um, you really get to know someone. And if anything, this pandemic has taught, I know a lot of my friends at school and a bunch of the students um, I represent that you really don't know what another person is going through. And this pandemic has just given everyone financial problems, social emotional learning problems, and just um, mental health in general to be focused on more, even though um, with or without this pandemic, mental health should be um, put out of focus, especially for our students. Yeah. The pandemic also robs you of the high school experience. Um, junior year, it's basically almost the toughest year for most high school um, students. And I spent my junior year completely online. Um, so that was pretty difficult and just kind of not really getting to experience being a teenager, hanging out with my friends in school in person um, was really difficult. And I know I can speak for a lot of the students um, in my grade and the students in high school right now that just being disconnected and being away from school, being away from really learning in the school environment has been difficult and pose um, difficulties that we still see um, this year. If you're just joining us, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ikulona. We're checking in with a few high school seniors about how the pandemic has affected their lives. Chris Stedman is still with us. Chris, do you feel, what do you feel like you've missed out on during the high school experience because of the pandemic? I mean, I want to ask both of you, did you even have homecoming? No, I mean, not really. Um, I missed out on a lot, man. <laughs> it kind of sucked because my birthday is a... Uh, January so that my sophomore year we had just came back from winter break you know Christmas and things and I just turned 16 I just got a car I just got my job I'm thinking this is what I've been waiting for my entire life you know the teenage experience and things and then the pandemic came around like maybe March February yeah. and it kind of just shut down everything and at first I'm not, I'm not gonna lie at first, we thought it was kind of not cool, but it was like, oh, we get an extra break from school. Okay. And then the two weeks turned into three weeks, and then it turned into months. And then they just said, we're not going back. And it kind of sucked. And and like she said it before, I spent my whole junior year online. And that junior year is your hardest year. And it just, and online just made it like 10 times harder. So 
it kind of yeah it kind of did rob a lot for uh rob us from the experiment angeli what's your reaction to that like what did you think it was exciting at first when school shut down um i will say that um a break from school is something that most students won't complain about um but in retrospect i guess that's just kind of um more evidently so um of the burnout that students still face and if we were feeling it then we are feeling it a lot now just coming back um from basically two years being alone and learning virtually and remotely um so yeah so both of you kind of missed out on prom as well are you having a prom this year Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. So things are slightly right with the world. But, you know, two years ago, <laughs> none of us had any real ability to put the pandemic into proper frame of reference. Like, I know some people who thought it would be around for a couple months, like you mentioned, Chris, and then things would pop back yeah. into normal. Then it was two years, and we're still going. I have a question about normal. What does that mean for you at this point? Chris? Man, I hope we go back to 2019 one day. But I think the idea of normal now is just, you know, it's been two years since it started. It's, you know, keep pushing it, you know, wear a mask. Everybody, you know, we're in this fight together. We got to keep evolving and changing. Um, uh, we just got to keep pushing, you know, um, whatever it comes. If it gets worse, we might have to go back remote, but we just got to stay strong and keep pushing and then be uh, willing to change. Angeli. Um, to be completely honest, my definition of normal never really um, was a question in my mind before the pandemic, because um, when everything is right in your own little world, then you don't really question about what if this sense of normal normalcy is taken away. Um, so I guess my definition of normal right now is just um, treating this pandemic as um, with the severity that it is in reality um, and just adjusting to it, um, trying to bring that sense of normal back to while also being cognizant of what is happening outside of just your small community at school or in a specific city or even the state. Mm -hmm. And you both are high school seniors, so I'm sure you're thinking about your futures. So how has this experience changed how you think and consider your future? Angela. Um, well, Chris, Chris, oh, okay. go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, like I uh, like stated before, um, with the pandemic, that got me into, you know, writing and, you know, wanting to write. So I plan on, like I said, starting the company and um, I'm going back and forth on going to college and taking um, a writing course and just um, continuing on the path of books and writing and other forms of entertainment and writing media. Angeli. Um, the pandemic has definitely given me some time to think about my passions and what I want to do after high school. Um, but also looking at um, the state of our nation and the state of the world right now, specifically um, being away from school and um, just learning remotely really opened my mind to um, maybe the realms of international relations Um Looking at this country's social justice system, um, criminal justice reforms. Um, so I'm really interested in studying political science next year. And um, this pandemic has really um, pushed me towards that direction. 
And I don't think I would be so confident in wanting to study that um, without it. That is high school senior Angeli Kimbo. She was joined by fellow senior Chris Stedman. I'll tell you this, you're probably going to be voting for her one day and you're going to be reading one of his novels. Thank you both for being on the show and the good luck to both of you. Will you do us a favor and send us prom photos? (laughs) Yes, definitely. I'm going to a handful. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WP. PLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back to thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Sarah Dark, Ladarius Barlow, Melissa Maurer, Mrs. Jewell, Jalen Hayes, Kyla Kringle, Kaylee Savage, Kucher, Tony Gonzalez, Damon Mitchell, and Juliana Kim. The conversation does not end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other. <laughs>